0: Hello and welcome. You've found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. Today's lecture is on DSM diagnosis and biopsychosocial spiritual assessment. We're going to start out by distinguishing the two and then we're going to focus on DSM for the first half of the lecture Uh, go over a little bit of the history, uh, focus on the multi-axial system. Then we're going to talk about biopsychosocial spiritual assessment and the components that are involved in that. So first, what is the difference between a DSM diagnosis and a biopsychosocial spiritual assessment? Well, diagnosis is the process of determining whether a particular problem that someone reports as distressing um, actually meet criteria for a psychological disorder so it's it's not enough to just say I'm feeling really stressed that's not a diagnosis um, everyone feels stress there's nothing abnormal about that uh, in contrast an assessment is is the systematic evaluation of biological psychological social, and spiritual factors um, in an individual presenting with a possible pathological disorder. So with the biopsychosocial spiritual assessment, you're looking at those four major domains. One of those pieces of information um, might actually help in the diagnosis of a disorder. What is a diagnosis? Um, A diagnosis is a type of classification and classifications are simply uh groupings of things based on common characteristics. And and we classify things all the time. Uh music is a good example. It's fairly easy to classify drastically different types of music such as opera, hip hop, jazz, and reggae. Most people can listen to um uh a few seconds of each of those and categorize them fairly easily now they're all music but they're all categories within music now like any classification system as these musical categories uh, become more similar they become harder to distinguish so for example what would be the difference between hard rock heavy metal death metal grunge the same can be asked about country and bluegrass or electronica Versus drums and bass versus techno. Anytime you talk to a musician and you say, Oh, you're a techno musician or you're a jazz musician, you run the risk of the musician turning around and saying, No, I'm not. I don't play jazz, I play music. In these situations, the musicians would be reacting to the label. And we'll come back to this later, but the issue of labeling is one of the criticisms of diagnosis that is applying a general label to a unique individual and this issue of how to tease out specific characteristics and apply a commonly understood label is another criticism of the DSM and we'll talk a little bit more about that later but when you have a person presenting with a variety of symptoms that don't seem to meet, to match a classification, they have created an out, and that is the not otherwise specified category. In the field of mental health, classification is called a nosology. Now, the DSM is the nosological classification of a cluster of symptoms, a level of impairment, and a subjective level of distress. One of the critiques of the DSM, uh, other than the labeling that we mentioned before, is that the way that you determine what is symptomatic, impaired, or distressing is subjective. And by labeling someone with a disorder, you justify the diagnosis. And this is called a tautology. Because somebody has the symptoms, they therefore must have the diagnosis. And because they have a diagnosis, they must therefore have the symptoms. So let's take a brief look at the history of classification of mental illness. History is important because every classification system that has been developed is a product of the cultural, intellectual, and political climate in which it was developed. So, for example, um, one of the earliest classifications of Um, problems was um, called the four humors and all problems could be uh, traced back to imbalances in humors and this led to bloodletting and leaching and other types of procedures that were intended to balance out your humors probably not very humorous to the patients but um the, the way that these imbalances were determined, the types of procedures, these were all um, uh, left up to the devices of the people in the specific towns or villages or even um, streets. Now, in 1900, uh, the world, believe it or not these days, but the world uh, was a much smaller place than it was even 50 years earlier as a result of the invention of the telephone and the telegraph. So, it became increasingly more, it became increasingly difficult for people to um, use their own classification systems. So, in 1900, a group of people met in the intellectual center of the world, which was Paris, and they created the International Classification of Dese- Diseases, which we now refer to as the ICD-1. The ICD-1 focused mostly on diseases that killed you, because back in those days, most diseases did kill you. And... Uh, death is is also talked about as mortality so when you see data you can see mortality data and that's actually people who die by 1936 diagnosis and treatment had improved to the point where diseases did not necessarily kill you so the ICD grew in scope to include diseases that made you ill and this is referred to as, as morbidity in the late 1940s The center of the intellectual world had shifted to New York City. Uh, Europe was financially and socially defeated from World War II. The United States was the victor and the concept of disease had expanded to include mental illness and the ICD um, uh, included six mental illnesses. Now in 1952 The first Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders was published. And the DSM-1 included about 106 diagnoses. Now, when we think about cultural, intellectual, and political influences, the diagnoses were heavily influenced by a man named Menninger, who worked with vets from World War II. And he saw most problems as emanating from uh, biological causes. And in that sense, they were reactions to specific things. For example, one of the diagnoses was reaction to war. These diagnoses were not based on any scientific studies. And, And this is through no fault of the authors of the first DSM but without these categories in the first place, there was no classification from which to do research. So this first DSM contained paragraph-long descriptions of what reaction to war looked like. Now note that reaction to war actually is an explanation for why somebody might be acting a certain way, rather than a description of how they are acting. And this is important as we get, move along to uh, our current Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Now, in the 1950s, we also saw the advent of psychotropics, medications that affect people's emotional well-being. One of the uh, most famous um, medications was Valium, also known as Mother's Little Helper, and it treated anxiety. Uh, Thorazine was invented and used to treat psychosis, uh, schizophrenia, and um, in order to effectively test these drugs the drug companies needed a way to uh, accurately identify what it was they were treating and the DSM 1 and the DSM 2 both suffered from the same problem which was they had poor interrater reliability two clinicians could see the same client and come up with different diagnoses. Good interrater reliability would mean that um, two clinicians would see the same person and come up with the same diagnosis. And they would do that because the criteria for meeting the diagnosis were specific enough that the determination of of a diagnosis um, would not be subjective, but would rather be based on the criteria and the symptoms presented. So the drug companies were looking for precise diagnosis, and the DSM-1 and the DSM-2 had poor inter reliability. Now, the DSM-2 came out in 1968, the same year as the ICD-7. The biological reactions from the DSM-1 were actually replaced with psychodynamic explanations, and these influences came out of Freud and other psychodynamic theorists so for example the the explanation of somebody's behavior in the DSM one uh, might have said reaction to war uh, in the DSM two, it they talked a lot about neuroses so a diagnosis, a diagnosis was neurosis due to underlying conflict. Again, notice how the diagnosis is actually uh, an explanation for an underlying reason for someone's problems. Now, the DSM-2 did include uh, a child section. And this was part of the societal recognition that children could actually suffer. And there was also, remember, in the 1960s, the late 1960s in particular, there was a lot of uh, teenage and young adult rebellion, uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, uh, hippie counterculture, protests, all these things that were going on. And the war generation, which Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation, in general uh, didn't understand what was going on to uh, the, these adolescents, and so they started understanding um, these problems as mental disorders. Uh, and one of the diagnoses in DSM-2 was, in fact, adjustment to adolescence. And this was a diagnosis that everyone loved, kids and adults alike. In the DSM-2, you had neuroses and psychoses, which in the DSM-4 have been updated to be called anxiety and psychotic symptomology. Now, the DSM-II still didn't fully address the needs of researchers because disorders were descriptors rather than classifiers. It wasn't until 1980 that the dsm 3 created major changes in how diagnoses were described and defined and how they were used. So the three major changes in the dsm 3 were that uh, it was atheoretical, that is, they did not give causes for um, people's mental illnesses. For example, reaction to war or neurosis due to underlying conflict uh, were no longer legitimate diagnoses. They were atheoretical uh, in that they did not distinguish between biological or psychological disorders. The dsm three also listed specific criteria for identifying disorders. Now, this made it possible to study reliability and validity of the criteria, which means that uh, starting in 1980 is really the first time that research has been able to, over uh, multiple studies, use the same criteria and um, the same bases for determining whether or not interventions, medications, therapies, um etc etc are reliable and valid the dsm3 also introduced the multiaxial system the multiaxial system enabled clinicians to describe the person's functioning on a number of different dimensions rather than just one disorder Dimensions that extended beyond the primary diagnosis to include chronic personality disorders, medical conditions related to the disorder, psychosocial stress, and a way of establishing functioning were the different axes. And because the process was based on committee decision, social workers were able to push for the inclusion of an axis three and an axis four, the um, medical and ecological factors. Um, and so, again, this is interesting because uh, the DSM was developed through committee. It was a political process. And even though there were specific criteria for disorders, those criteria were decided on based on committee decision. And social workers uh, were able to vote and they were able to um have an influence on the the DSM-3. Now, some of the critiques of the DSM-3 include that some of the disorders had very poor inter reliability, and the symptoms were decided by committee rather than purely by research. Now, I should say in defense of the DSM-3 that most of the diagnoses had some empirical basis, but because there had been no prior ability to do research, um... The um, specifics of the diagnoses uh, were were unknown. Now, in 1994, we saw the publication of the DSM-4, and this is our current basic diagnostic and statistical manual. In response to the criticism that symptoms were decided by committee rather than purely by research in the DSM-3, the uh, diagnoses and the symptoms were based entirely on empirical evidence, not by committee. In preparation for the DSM-IV, 12 field trials were conducted to establish inter-rater reliability and validity of different sets of criteria and in some cases to establish a new diagnosis. The DSM-IV also eliminated distinctions between organically-based disorders and psychologically-based disorders. Before we go on, let's talk a little bit about the multi-axial system. Axis 1 is clinical disorders and other conditions that may be a focus of clinical attention, for example, a V-code. Personality disorders were moved to Axis 2. Now, personality disorder is defined as a consistent behaviors that are extreme. So, for example, there's a difference between being neat and orderly and being compulsive. Uh, and also there is a severity and length of problem with functioning or happiness that is not present in a person that is having personality issues but does not actually have a personality disorder. And in fact, that idea of impairment in functioning in at least one domain of your life whether that be home school job environmental is key to deciding whether or not something is actually a disorder now also coded on axis two is mental retardation and you have uh, borderline intellectual functioning and mental retardation both of which are decided based on IQ now in axis three we code general medical conditions and these are any medical conditions that might impact the disorder. The, the mind and the body have a connection. For example, um, cancer can be discovered because a patient presents with symptoms of depression. And in fact, one of the symptoms of cancer is depression. So you want to code anything that is a general medical condition that is related to the disorder on Axis 3. Now, this wouldn't be allergies, specifically. uh, Let's say your client came in, was talking about um, having a runny nose. That's not a general medical condition that is specifically related to um, a mental illness, and therefore you would not have to code on that. Axis four is psychosocial and environmental problems, which is another way of saying what's stressing this person these stressors might affect the diagnosis treatment and prognosis of axis one and axis two diagnoses so again they're related to each other axis four information should be specific to the last year and pertinent to the mental illness so for example prior combat experience would be pertinent to a diagnosis of ptsd there are a number of categories that are typically listed um, on Axis 4, and they include problems with primary social support group, problems with the social environment, problems with education, occupation, housing, economy, healthcare, legal system, or other. And finally, Axis 5, that's the global assessment of functioning. This establishes a single, global, unidimensional level of functioning. It's useful for planning, treatment, and predicting um, and evaluating outcomes. For example, If a client comes in and their current functioning is defined as the lowest level of functioning within the last week, and that was a 40, and again, you don't have to know what these numbers mean, they range from 1 to 100, but let's say it's a 40, and then when they leave, their functioning is a 60. Well, this can be really quite useful in determining the success of the treatment because ultimately we're interested in how well our client functions, almost regardless of the severity of their symptoms. So, for example, if we think about it in terms of physical health, Richard Hawking is confined to a wheelchair, cannot communicate except through a computer, has very, very severe symptoms. However, his level of functioning is very high because... uh, Level of functioning only relates to psychological, social, or occupational functioning, not physical or environmental limitations. So for Hawking's, the limitations are physical and environmental, but uh, emotionally, socially, psychologically, and certainly in terms of his job, uh, his functioning is a very high level. Now, there are clarifiers that you can use for the GAF score, um, and those would be next to the score you would put in parentheses current, highest in past year. Or at discharge. In 2000, the DSM 4 text revision wa- um, was um, published. It did clarify the definition of current impairment on Axis 5. It clarified ambiguity regarding the time frame for major depressive disorder specifiers. And it also clarified the concept of polysubstance dependence. But again, it did not change any of those diagnoses. And uh, the DSM 5 is slated to come out in. 2011. And there are a number of proposed changes, but since this is not a DSM class, we are not going to spend time on that. Just know that you've got quite a few years to work with the DSM for before things change, either radically or not so radically. Cultural issues are are always of concern to social workers. We tend to see things in systemic Um, From a systemic viewpoint, and we understand that culture plays a significant role in both the presentation of uh, symptoms, the access to treatment, and response to treatment. Um, These are all influenced by culture. And for the first time in the DSM-IV, cultural issues were included. They were relegated to the appendix, and that was called the Outline for Cultural Formulation and Glossary of Cultural-Based Syndromes. Uh, Of course, the hope is that we will move these cultural issues from the back of the bus right up front into the diagnoses themselves. But basically what the DSM said is that you have to take cultural factors into account. If in your culture it is acceptable to, to do what they call cupping, which is to place heated cups on a body to draw out negative energy... Um, or harmful energy and that leaves bruises, Uh, it doesn't necessarily fit our Western definitions of abuse. This is an important thing to think about when we talk about cultural implications. Some of the benefits of diagnosis include establishing a baseline, um, narrowing the scope of treatment, um, diagnosis allows for the evaluation of presenting problems and it provides a common language for service providers. Some of the problems include labeling, such as uh, when Kermit said, It's not easy being green, or as I think he said it, It's not easy being green. And, and, and the reason why labeling is an issue is because we tend to take one thing and make it the whole, like skin color or cognitive functioning. For example, uh, labels such as moron, idiot, and imbecile are today considered major insults, and uh, we would never apply those labels to our clients or our friends unless we're just playing around with them. But in fact, when they were introduced, they were fairly neutral and benign categories of cognitive functioning. But as time passed, they picked up negative connotations and were truly understood to be insults. Of course, there are some people who are actually overjoyed to find out that they have a diagnosis, that there is some explanation for what's wrong with them. In the same way, some parents are overjoyed when they find out that, in fact, their child does have ADHD, for example, because this label provides them with an explanation for these behavior problems, and it suggests some possible solutions for addressing these problems. And finally, as we mentioned in the beginning, one of the other problems of diagnosis is that it establishes a tautology. Because the symptoms are present, the person has the diagnosis. And because the person has the diagnosis, they must have the symptoms. And so that is a brief overview of the history of the DSM and of diagnosis. And next we're going to talk a bit about the biopsychosocial spiritual assessment. So I'm Jonathan Singer. Thanks for being with me today for this episode of the Social Workers Podcast. If you have suggestions for future podcasts, please feel free to email me at, cooljazz at flash.net. And to all those social workers out there, keep up the good work.